Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. Now that the passage of health care reform legislation is behind us, a lot of the hullabaloo has died down. A lot of that hullabaloo was about fear of government rationing of health care services. We all know that the government's cost of health care has got to come down. At least, as President Obama says, we have to bend down the, the cost curve, the growth in health care spending. People are worried about how the government's going to manage that. Some fear what the government's already doing. The government has an agency, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, that's involved in supporting guidelines and investigating efficiencies in the healthcare system. Hey, efficiencies sound good. So does guidelines. But are these just euphemisms for rationing? What exactly is the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality up to? To find out, we're going to speak with Dr. Carolyn Clancy, the director of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Dr. Clancy is a general internist and a health services researcher. A health services researcher is a scientist who studies healthcare delivery, for example, studying the cost or the quality of healthcare. Prior to serving as director of the agency, she served as director of the agency's Center for Outcomes and Effectiveness Research. Dr. Clancy, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I was hoping we could start with just a little background for our listeners about what the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality is. So the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is a mouthful, so we say ARC, is one of 12 agencies within the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. It's just over 20 years old and uh, used to have a different name. Now it is ARC, which is much, much easier to say. And our focus is improving health care, specifically improving the quality, effectiveness, efficiency, and safety of health care for all Americans. So we do this by doing research. We focus a lot on safety and quality, and we also want to make sure that people have the best possible information so that they know which treatment choices are right for them. This seems like a very important agency in the scheme of things nowadays. There's so much talk about the quality of medical care, safety issues. Having an agency devoted to that is is a wonderful thing. Well, thank you. Uh, we're incredibly excited by the opportunities right now, and and we're also conscious of how much we have to learn. You know, we the U.S. leads the world in biomedical science, so there's more and more new discoveries. And as a physician, I can tell you that, and you know all too well, that 
there are so many breakthrough uh, treatments now that make providing patient care so much different. But it's very hard for clinicians and patients to figure out what's the right treatment from this broad array of uh, menu options, if you will. So being able to give patients and clinicians better information so that healthcare really works for patients, that's what keeps us excited. That, that's great. I could see where where people at, at ARC, the AHRQ, or Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, would be very excited about helping patients get better care on a regular basis. So are there key target areas, areas where there's low-hanging fruit or where the problems are so big now that that ARC feels like, oh, these are things we absolutely need to address first? Um, Well, there are. we certainly set priorities for the work that we do. So I would mention a couple. Uh, One is that we've been doing a fair amount of work since about 2004 uh, evaluating applications of health information technology. So that's electronic health records for doctors and other health professionals. It's personal health records for patients. Uh, And frankly, it's strategies that use that data to make care better for patients. That that seems like a wonderful area. As as many guests on this show have observed, uh, it's hard to know how to fix things if we don't know what the problems are. Um, It's hard to track outcomes the potential for there to be an electronic record that captures all that data would provide a tremendous opportunity for addressing the safety and quality issues we want to address. Oh, I mean, we miss information so much all the time. And, you know, as a doctor, I would often say to a patient something along the lines of, can you just tell me your story again, just so that I've, I'm really have it in your words. And sometimes what I really meant was we can't find the chart. (laughs) So I have no notes here. And it's a totally different conversation when you do have the chart because, after all, that's what notes are for. Um, And some of the best systems are now using all of that information to actually be proactive. Well, that's such a fascinating observation. You know, you're saying the same thing in totally different words, but it gives patients a, a a completely different impression of what kind of doctor you are when you say, I have no notes, Uh, you're going to have to tell me this again, versus, you know, I'm really interested, let's go over your story one more time. Right. Well, and of course, oftentimes I would write down things about a particular individual that was bothering them and so forth, or, you know, something unique to them. And so when I had a chart, they would look at me like I was a genius. Oh, you remember that my grandson's having trouble in school or something along those lines, and that all gets lost in a paper world. So uh, it's not easy if you talk to anyone in the middle of one of these installations. Uh, some days it's hard to remember why we're doing this because it's uh, challenging to make it all work, but it makes a huge difference. It's so interesting to me. I think of those little things, those interpersonal re- interactions between patients and their doctors as being of the greatest importance to patient satisfaction and a key element of medical care. But I would think that that's not something the, that, that ARC would be interested in. I, I was thinking ARC would be more interested in which strategy for blood pressure medications is going to give you the best outcomes. Um, well, we are interested in that, but we're also interested in the other as well. I mean, ARC actually since 1995, so that's about 15 years, has actually led the development of surveys of patient experience with care. 
which we regard as a very key element of care quality, uh, because we know that the only person who can evaluate an individual's experience is that individual. Uh, some of this work has led us to find out that uh, one thing that's very important to patients uh, about their primary care providers is that that individual knows me as a person. So, yes, we do a lot of sort of quantitative work and what might be thought of as sort of hard science, but all this other stuff matters a lot, too, because healthcare is very personal. So health information technology is one of the, the key areas that ARC is addressing in safety and quality. Uh, any, other, any other major targets? Um, a big area for us is uh, called patient-centered health research or comparative effectiveness. I kind of like the patient-centered name better because this is all about uh, clinicians and patients working together to figure out what's the right treatment for me. Um, you know, when I see these ads on TV for different products, uh, at the end it will always say, uh, after you hear about the fabulous things this new product does, and by the way, there's a few side effects, it always says, ask your doctor. And the implication is that your doctor has instantaneous access to information about all the stuff we have now on the one side and the new stuff on the other, and that it's customized for you. And I think most clinicians know that that's an aspiration. That's what they'd like to have. But we haven't made the investment in that kind of comparative information. So it's easier to find out about dishwashers uh, than it is to find out uh, what's the right treatment for me if I have a new diagnosis and so forth. Well, even with respect to dish, well, perhaps with respect to dishwashers, uh, Consumer Reports have lined up six dishwashers right next to each other, six different ones, and compared them for specific things that they're capable of doing. So in comparative effectiveness research, we want to take medicines, medicines that have been approved by the FDA because they've been proven better than placebo and show, have a certain safety record, but actually subject them to comparisons across other treatments and see which is the best approach? That's exactly right. Now, it gets really interesting uh, scientifically uh, because oftentimes the decision a choice is between, say, medicines and a surgical procedure, or it's between medicines, uh, some type of sort of lifestyle intervention like uh, exercise or taking calcium pills, for example, if you have bones that are getting thinner, or, you know, all these different things. And we actually haven't done a whole lot of that in the past. So, again, when, you know, docs are talking to patients, they're kind of giving them a rough idea. But to actually do a head-to-head comparison is uh, pretty tricky. And all we can say to patients is, and, you know, we're hoping that the, the research we're supporting leads clinicians and patients to say, okay, so here's the options. Here's these sort of profiles of uh, benefits and potential harms, as you sort of like the dishwasher example you were just talking about. And now, you know, what do you want to do? Now, oftentimes the conversation doesn't go quite that way, but uh, mm-hmm. the gap that we're trying to address is the information that would fuel that conversation. Government already has a big role in paying for health care, and that role potentially could get bigger. Some people were worried about that, that the government is going to start regulating things. Um, you mentioned that, well, if your focus is on studies that measure the safety and quality and relative efficacy of different drugs, hey, that sounds great. 
But you mentioned that another thing that ARC does is look at efficiency of treatment. Tell me more about that. Well, I guess I would say we aspire to uh, examine efficiency of treatment. Some of this has to do, for example, with how care is organized or is not. So just to give you an example, we funded a study, more of a demonstration, if you will, of out in Denver Health. Uh, this is a public health system. So it's an old public hospital, and it's connected to some community health centers, uh, some local health departments, and so forth. And they wanted to revise how they do business. So, for example, in thinking about how they could do a job more efficiently, the, the leader of that organization, a woman physician, actually put pedometers on the obstetricians and found out that they were walking 8 to 10 miles a day. Now, in terms of getting a lot of steps under their belt, so to speak, mm-hmm. that's a great thing. Yeah, uh, on the exercise. other hand, you've got to believe it's a little bit frustrating and suggest that maybe we need to redesign how we're doing care and so forth. And what they were able to show is that after, I think it was at the tail end of the third year, not only had they improved quality, but they had saved quite a bit of money uh, because they were looking at how care was organized. Now, that's much, much harder uh, to do, although I would say that uh, any of your listeners who've been in a healthcare setting recently probably could themselves identify a few steps to make things more efficient. Mm-hmm. And trying to do that on a scale across an organization, that's one way of getting at efficiency. And we're still trying to figure out how to do more of that. I, I've heard the term cost-effectiveness research, but we're talking, um, when we talk about the work that ARC supports, is comparative effectiveness. So as opposed to looking at what's the least costly therapy, ARC is more focused on which is the best therapy. Do yes, I understand that's that right? exactly right. I mean, if you look at the term cost-effectiveness, it's about sort of what things cost, but it's also about what works. And many people believe that, you know, 80 or 90% of that is figuring out what works for which patients and so forth. So that is really our focus. Now, the recent legislation has helped expand patients' access to medical care, but it hasn't, as far as I know, done much to, what did President Obama say, bring, uh, bend that curve of, of growth downward, uh, the, the curve of cost downward. Is the work that ARC's doing also going to help us on the cost side of medical care? Well, I think most importantly, uh, it will help us uh, get to a place where people get the treatment that's right for them, that meets their needs, that meets their preferences and so forth. I mean, you and I both know, uh, as do many others, that occasionally uh, if you left the patient preferences and the unique personal stuff out of the equation, a surgical procedure might be just the ticket, right? And there are patients who would do anything to avoid surgery or would do anything to avoid a needle and so forth. Mm -hmm. So this is all very personal. Um, Our hope is to close the gap, and uh, at least that information will be part of getting us to a place where we get much more of a return on our investment in healthcare. If we know the starting point uh, more rapidly, Instead of having to do as much trial and error, that's likely to lead to some savings. But I think there's a whole lot of unknowns in terms of what's the impact on the cost curve. But where we know there's a gap is actually in what kind of information we have to make the decisions to begin with. 
You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm Dr. Steve Fellman. We're speaking with Dr. Carolyn Clancy, the director of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is known as ARC. Dr. Clancy, healthcare-associated infections seem to be a, a critical issue and one where if we could avoid them, we could lower the cost of care. Is ARC doing anything to address this problem? Yes. Uh, first, I should say that one of the um, studies that I'm most proud, or certainly recent studies of which I'm most proud, uh, was a study led by a team from Hopkins in the state of Michigan called the Keystone Project. Uh, and what the team at Hopkins did was they developed a checklist, uh, which makes it sound like the checklist did all the work. But actually, the checklist was a guide for teams of healthcare professionals working in intensive care units to work together to dramatically reduce the occurrence of uh, serious bloodstream infections associated with central lines, and they had dramatic improvements. Central lines for our audience would be would be um, tubes placed in the in the vasculature to either draw blood or administer. Yes. Uh, medications on a regular basis. Boy, having something like that left inside you, I, you could see where that would be a place where infections could grab hold. Right, cause, and you've got two ways to do that, right? One is that you didn't put it in right and the line got contaminated, and the second is that the line gets left in too long and the risk of contamination goes up. And you, when it does happen, you're putting bacteria right into the bloodstream. And it can be uh, a very uh, fatal problem for many patients. So reducing these infections is a major big deal. And so they came up with an approach that worked in small uh, rural hospitals, and it worked in these very large academic medical centers. And across the state, they made dramatic improvements in care. So right now, we're working with a number of partners to expand that to all 50 states and the District of Columbia. So that's very exciting. We're also working with partners uh, in the Department of Health and Human Services, including the Centers for Disease Control and so forth, to address other infections, to identify emerging threats um, as early as possible and keep them from being, you know, front-page stories uh, next year. So that would include the so-called MRSA or MRSA. or th- These are one kind of germ that's highly resistant to antibiotics and so forth. Um, our focus is on more to the practical strategies that any hospital could use to make sure that we take all the steps possible to reduce infections because it makes a huge difference. These kinds of studies seem like a win-win that few people would have any problem with, studies that help improve patients' care, improve outcomes, and ultimately lower the, the cost of delivering care. Because I imagine if you develop one of these severe infections, not only is death a problem, but prolonged, truly prolonged hospitalizations, very intensive care, very high cost of managing a patient in that situation. Absolutely. And, and the, the fact that you're able to come up with interventions that work across as you said, small community hospitals and large academic centers, that just, I think, goes to show you the complexity of what you're dealing with because the variation in what medicine involves across numerous settings, um, the intensity of the care given is really, it's quite diverse. Absolutely. Well, the other issue that we hear a lot about besides healthcare-associated infections 
are medical errors, and they can be costly in many ways too. Is, is ARC doing work to reduce errors in medicine? Yes, we are. Um, and in fact, we're working with many organizations across the country to help hospitals and other kinds of organizations develop their own systems internally for tracking potential errors and even near misses. Um, humans are imperfect and mistakes will always be made. Uh, the real trick is to try to learn when that happens so that you prevent it the next time. You know, patients who have been harmed as a result of a medical mistake uh, usually say they want three things. Uh, they want an apology. Uh, they want to know what happens to me now, which is pretty understandable. And then they want to know that you're going to do something to prevent this from happening again. And healthcare professionals agree with that general approach. Uh, so the trick is try to figure out how do you build systems and how do you create an environment that actually makes it okay for people to say, whoa, um, either we just made a big mistake or we almost made a big mistake. So that's a big focus of our work as well. It includes medication errors. Um, it includes a lot of different types of mistakes. And uh, this coming year, we're actually going to be supporting work to create a way for individual patients to report on mistakes and potential harms, not so that they can be, you know, judge and jury of hospitals, but so that uh, hospitals and healthcare professionals can learn from that input. Sounds like we're getting into culture and sociology and trying to... it. Yeah. I think this idea that, that we would track near misses um, is complementary to your initial comments about electronic medical records. Being able to track is perhaps the first step in being able to learn and identify new approaches to avoid problems. I, I imagine other industries are ahead of medicine in this regard. Um, possibly. I, I would say we at least know that there's a lot to learn from other industries, whether they're actually all ahead or not, not even quite sure how you'd make that uh, comparison. I guess what people we do talk know about is the... that uh, aviation has taken exactly. a very systematic approach to this, and in addition to the fact that any time a pilot gets um, into a plane, all the controls look the same and that kind of thing, they have regular processes. And they also have um, simulation labs so that they're getting better and better at uh, sort of more and more complex kinds of events. And what I find very interesting is that's a technique that's coming to medicine in a big way, uh, simulation where... Uh, you can, you know, essentially work through uh, surgical procedures or even interviewing patients or even working with teams who are not in the same location with you physically uh, trying to address a common problem that requires many people working on it together. It's very, very exciting and I think uh, offers, uh, you know, sort of dramatic new opportunities to how we teach and train and help people maintain their skills and so forth. It's funny you mentioned that our guest last week, the director of continuing medical education at a major medical university, was talking about the growing use of simulation in both medical education at the medical school level and continuing medical education. Um, another point you raise with regard um, er, earlier that I think is a key thing used in aviation is this, the checklist phenomenon. Yes, and that was what was used in the state of Michigan, and that is very much modeled on aviation. 
And I think it's an open question whether we can use a checklist for every single problem facing the healthcare system. That would be a whole lot of checklists. But and, and you know, the checklist itself is really a tool to get a team working together. Because if there's one thing we know, it's that getting to safe, high quality care is a team sport. One of the things I like to think of as a physician is is the first step in the checklist when you're walking into the patient's room is just to remind yourself that for the next few minutes you're just going to focus on this one patient and and and, and make sure you understand them as a patient, uh, make sure that you leave them feeling respected. I, I, I think it changes their medical outcomes because they end up being more compliant with therapy. Absolutely. Well. How about um, preventive care? Is, is ARC doing anything in the way of uh, research in preventive care? Yes, and I'll just uh, mention this, and then I think we may be getting to a place where we'll need to summarize. Yes. Um, so we provide administrative and scientific support for the Preventive Services Task Force, which makes evidence-based recommendations about uh, preventive services um, focused and aimed primarily at primary care clinicians. And they have a very rigorous and transparent process for how they review evidence and how they make recommendations and so forth. And they literally give the recommendations grades. So the best possible evidence gets a grade of A. Uh, Good evidence that isn't quite that good is B, and so on and so forth. And because science changes all the time, those recommendations are updated every five years as well. In addition to that, we're trying, we're focusing a lot of work. Some of it's in our health IT program, uh, some of it's in other parts of our work, trying to figure out how do you build this into practice. You know, there's a whole lot of studies that say doctors are most likely to remember uh, preventive recommendations, uh, whether it's screening tests or counseling about smoking or something. Uh, when a patient makes an appointment for something called quote unquote, a health maintenance exam or an annual physical. So that's good. That's a good time to talk about it, but a lot of people who don't get around to making that appointment. So there's a lot of missed opportunities. So that's uh, trying to figure out how do you put in place effective strategies to remind people uh, that, yes, I know that you're here for the paperwork for your son's camp physical, but by the way, you need to get a mammogram or get screened for colon cancer and so forth. That's all uh, part of this. And uh, so it's exciting work. Uh, Dr. Clancy, I'm going to have to have another show on the Preventive Services Task Force. I'm cognizant of your time. Let's just summarize. Any specific suggestions for our listeners on how they can get better health or better health care? Well, I would say that we take a very strong uh, view that individual patients are a very important part of the health care team. So if your listeners were to check out ahrq.gov, they would see that there's a whole section for consumers, which ranges from everything from questions that you can think about bringing with you when you go to the doctor to things you ought to be thinking about before you have surgery to checklists on preventive services for men and women and so forth, and even an advice column for me. Perfect. That's so wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. The recent debates about health care reform brought several things into clear focus. One is that we need to address patients' access to care. But we also need to address quality and cost issues. The legislation that we passed was very strong on helping improve people's access to care, but I'm not sure it did that much to improve quality or to reduce cost. 
The government already has programs underway through the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, ARC. Hopefully, those initiatives will lead to, to programs that improve quality while reducing costs. That, that, that is potentially something that can happen, um, although many times things that improve quality increase cost. But reducing hospital infections, improving people's access to preventive care, all those things can lower cost and improve quality. But there's something more that we can do ourselves to improve quality and lower the cost of care, and that's to take greater responsibility for our own health. Check out ahrq.gov. I think the resources that Dr. Clancy has created there are really quite helpful, quite valuable for helping empower you to have better health care yourself and even bring down potentially your own costs. Her advice columns are terrific. I recommend them highly. We'll soon be speaking about other ways to help control your costs of health care. In a few weeks, we'll be speaking with Dr. Cynthia Kelker. She's the author of 101 Ways to Save Money on Health Care. Her book is just chocked with specific, practical advice for things we can do to help solve the health care cost problem. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next time, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's drscore.com, drscore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.